This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey all. You know, as a member of our Real Vision community, I want to give you something special. And that special thing is early access to our massive Black Friday sale with an incredible discount plus some more free stuff for you. You see, for me, getting prepared for 2024 is key for all of us. It's going to be a banner macro year. We've got a US election, a crypto bull market. We've got rate cuts to come. We've got technology. We've got everything at play all at the same time. And you need to be prepared for all of that. So realvision.com forward slash early Black Friday take advantage of the offers right now and set yourself up for an incredible 2024. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. In honor of the Thanksgiving holiday, the team is taking a much needed day off live programming, but it is Black Friday, so we are running a huge special, 50% off all tiers. What does that mean? Well, it can help get you access to great content like this piece we are unlocking for you today. In this conversation, Andrea sat down with Alex Campbell, ex-macro hedge fund manager turned founder and CEO of Rose AI, to talk about how AI can help investors improve their trading. Enjoy. How can we use artificial intelligence and data to trade macro themes? Welcome to this edition of Buy Side Meets Sell Side. I'm Andreas Stino, your monthly host on this show. And in this show, we allow the buy side to talk. Enough talking from pundits from the sell side. In this show, we want the buy side to do the talking. And this month, I've found a perfect guest for a discussion on how to use data and artificial intelligence to trade macro themes. I'm joined by Alex Campbell, the founder of Rose AI, former Bridgewater Associates and Lehman Brothers, among other things. Welcome to the show, Alex. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Alex, um, First of all, um, and a very interesting cocktail you have in, on your curriculum with AI paired with uh, investor experience from the buy side. I'm very curious on how you can utilize that cocktail uh, to sort of project trends and, and macro themes. I know that the Chinese macro theme uh, is one very close to your heart. So I'd like to start with a discussion on China and how to use data to sort of assess what's ongoing in China right now, because it is very tricky from the outside to get a grip of the situation in Chinese real estate, for example. So how do you view the situation and how do you use data to assess what's ongoing in China right now? Yeah, terrific question and problem, actually, and one of the big you know, focuses of my life for the past kind of almost five to 10 years. Um, you know, I really got into China uh, studying it as the commodities guy over at Bridgewater Associates, where, you know, China was consuming a lot of commodities and you had to kind of understand this big behemoth growth engine to try to figure out trends and demand and supply and, you know, what was going on in the world markets. And you end up with this 
when you start looking at China, kind of immediate fork in the road with how you decide to interact with the data and the information coming out of China. It's become increasingly hard to get good information from China. Um, you know, lots of the stats are kind of massaged, public, quasi-private, you know, reporting agencies. And so the framework I try to apply for this uh, problem is to think about what are the essentially public market or transparent prices or things you can observe that are not able to be futzed and then kind of everything else and put everything on this spectrum of, you know, we don't know how much we can trust GDP numbers. You know, we don't know how much we can trust provincial GDP numbers or whatever, you know, um, but, you know, stock prices are generally harder to futz with. Um, and so I think you have to kind of approach it from that perspective of look at market prices as much as possible. Now they make it hard to look at market prices in a lot of context. You can't really short because of the way they do repo. There's a bunch of technicalities with regards to actually getting good liquid market pricing out of China, but that is a data problem essentially, right? And you know, we started to answer that question by doing silly things like just adding up all the bonds we could find on the property developers a couple of years ago. And this was when we thought Evergrande was going to have a problem. We said, look, they're you know, their working capital needs are really voracious. They are very dependent on short-term dollar funding. It looks like it's going to blow up. You know, it looks like the losses are basically bigger than the remaining market capitalization. And we made this call saying, look, just based on what we can see in the publicly reported numbers, they have more losses than they have market cap. And so we think that they're gone. And then that led us to, to kind of investigate, well, look, property has been this huge growth engine for China. And a lot of the kind of middle data, the credit data, the bond data, um, you know, the the investment data, which are a little bit more and more distended from reality, um, would imply that it's not just a localized problem to Evergrande, it's a bigger problem. And I think Western investors then get overwhelmed by this because they go and they look at, you know, a bunch of, you know, hundreds of property companies that they might not understand the names of or where they're coming from or what provinces they're in even, you know, there's a there's a huge language gap. And so we said is, look, let's just add up all the bonds, literally. Just find every Vanke bond you can, find every Shamayo bond, find every Sunak bond, and just see what they're saying. And even about two years ago, we saw that in the wake of Evergrande immediately, and then coming back later in the last two years, for sure, um, the people who were investing in do particular dollar bonds basically were washed out years ago. They've been washed out for years. And if you added up the actual implicit losses that you'd have to generate to create the losses on those dollar bonds, we're talking trillions of dollars of losses. This isn't like 10 billion here, 100 billion there. This is trillions, if not, you know, middle trillions uh, of losses on, you know, what is essentially the biggest asset class in the world, Chinese real estate. And so, you know, you kind of then look at those numbers and you have to then go look at the official stats. So you look at GDP, you look at surveys, you look at things that are, you know, sometimes reliable, sometimes not, like the PMIs are notoriously unreliable. And yet in COVID, they were actually a great leading indicator, right? The PMI got crushed in March, 2020 or whatever. And it was like a good wake up call. Like it's a seven Z move, what the heck's going on? And so, you know, I think that there's this kind of, uh, I don't know if it's an aphorism or just a rule of thumb that we had at the old shop or whatever, which is there's no such thing as perfect truth. Like even US GDP numbers, US inflation numbers, like they get restated, there's revisions, you know, how much is the cost of living adjustment or whatever. Um, and you have that problem in China as well, but it's, it's the duality of kind of going back and forth and going back and forth and then just zooming out. And I think not enough people zoom out and going, 
wait a second, you're telling me that there's twice as much money supply in China as in the US, and that's according to them, right? You're telling me that you have trillion dollars of losses um, and, and the banks haven't taken a loss at all, right? And so we think that you can actually, when you, when you kind of aggregate stuff and then zoom out a bit, start to get a much more dynamic thematic understanding of where we are in this cycle uh, and where we are with regards to their growth cycle, where they've had this gigantic credit boom. It's clearly it was a bubble. They have popped the bubble and we're in this kind of wily e. coyote moment where none of the banks have taken any losses whatsoever, right? Which is shocking, shocking that they're able to get away with this. The equity markets are not really pricing that in yet. And so, you know, so far the emperor has no clothes and the emperor is getting away with it. But when you start to look at things like reserves, things we can count, like how many treasuries do they have? We can talk about that more later. You go, wait a second, like they don't have infinite resources to deal with this problem. Maybe that's part of the challenge that they're facing. This idea that um, they can't really take the losses because they don't have enough you know, capital. And so you know, that puts us in a very clear kind of timing and market positioning if you're managing money, right? Which is you have a secular view, which is this thing's unstable. It hasn't hit the bottom, like wait till the banks go. And then the timing indicator, which is actually it's not that hard. Go look at the worst big banks you can find. Look at Minchang, look at a bank called Industrial Bank, which only only lists in, in uh, on the mainland and just wait for those banks to blow up, right? And this was basically the, the, trading, the trading rule I got from my Lehman days, which was at Lehman, we're sitting there seeing the whole system kind of come down, come down, come down. And the indicators were actually pretty simple. It was just find the next financial institution that was reasonably big, that was under the gun, and just follow that rigorously, you know, maniacally, like look at Bear Stearns when it's under, under trouble, look at Merrill Lynch, you know, look at Lehman, look at AIG, look at Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And when it's a systemic issue, you generally can see the problem as it manifests, but you have these big narrative waves you got to deal with along the way. So look at public market data as much as you can, triangulate that with kind of the thematic stuff you can come coming out of it. Don't care too much about is it 5% GDP or 6% GDP because we all know that's made up anyway. Um, but you know the directions will tell you something and then that should inform your overall portfolio. Very interesting uh, introduction to this discussion on uh, China, Alex. Uh, I noted, I think last week, that we saw early signs of liquidity stress between the Chinese banks. One of the first signs, um, at least visible signs, of actual stress in the banking system in China. But uh, since we've had a, a pretty visible crisis in real estate, how come we don't see the reaction in the banking space in China yet? Is it due to a lack of price discovery or what's your explanation of what's ongoing there? Yeah, there's a huge critical distinction between Western financial markets and Chinese financial markets with regards to how they deal with repo, repurchase transactions, right? So I don't want to get, to, I'm not a repo expert, I don't want to get too into this, but you know, essentially I have collateral, I have treasuries, I use it as collateral where I give it to someone else for a while. They give me some liquidity. I can use that to go do other things with that liquidity. I can buy stocks or what have you. And then I get the bond back and I get the money back later. Okay. The way that works in the West and in general, every big market is when we do that repo transaction, I actually sell you the freaking bond. You get the bond. You can do whatever you want with it, which means you can short it, right? Because now you have possession of an asset that you owe later in the future. So China does not have this version of repo, or it's like 10% of repo is this kind of version. They have something called pledge repo. Okay, pledge repo, you might know from the warehousing scandals about you know, five, 10 years ago, is when you say, hey, I have a stack of copper in a warehouse, and I'm going to pledge it to you for financing. It's yours. I'm not going to give it to you, though. 
I'm not going to give you the title. I'm just going to give you a little piece of paper that says, oh, it's kind of yours and eventually I'll give it to you, right? The problem, there's a bunch of problems with this, but one of the easy, obvious problems is that people were repoing multiple turns on the same collateral. They'd say, oh, I'm going to lend it to you and I'm going to lend it to you and I'm going to lend it to you and I'll lend it to you. And they'd have 10 contracts outstanding for one bar of copper or whatever. So clearly fraud, right? But you can't find this stuff when you have pledge repo because you're never calling the actual asset. It also radically harms price discovery, particularly in fixed income, because you can't short bonds, basically. It's impossible to short bonds because you don't want to borrow. And so you have this kind of weird situation where the only time that um, banks really have to call their capital back or they have to call their loans back is when they're liquidity constrained, not when they're like insolvency constrained or asset constrained. You see this with the U.S. banking system, with the regionals, the KRE, you know, they have these these these. NPV problems with their fixed income book because they went and bought a bunch of duration and the Fed's like, no, 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 we're just going to let you borrow money at LIBOR essentially or whatever to hold on to this for a year and not book the loss, right? It's it's kind of a similar different with a different taste function over there. So what we think is the holdup behind the Evergrande bankruptcy, right? This thing went under two and a half freaking years ago, excuse my language or whatever, is once they crystallize that loss by settling on an RMB loss, not just screw the dollar holders, right? But screw the RMB holders. Mm. Then you have someone on at Minching who says, holy crap, we lent these guys $50 billion. We have to take a $25 billion write down on this, right? We have, to, we have to take delivery in busted parking garages and tower blocks that are gonna get demolished or whatever they have as collateral. That's all they have left. So you have this kind of daisy chain of recognizing losses, which is why the classic alternative is called extend and pretend extend liquidity and pretend there's no problem well the issue is you have a couple trillion dollars of distressed assets right now how how long can you pretend that that doesn't exist hey everyone we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the real vision daily briefing when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, um, apparently, uh, they're still uh, amidst this uh, pretend and extend phase, um, given that we haven't really seen this huge spillover to the Chinese banking system and the Chinese uh, banking stocks. And one thing I'd like your take on is how important uh, this crisis in real estate is for the sort of official monetary policy of the uh, Chinese central bank. Uh, you mentioned how the official numbers of uh, of the holdings of U.S. Treasury uh, bonds from the um, safe part of the uh, uh, People's Bank of China has been dwindling basically since 2014 or thereabout. Uh, but how is this interlinked with the real estate crisis? And how do you view monetary policy in China right now? Are they just throwing money at the problem here? Yeah, so normally what happens is you get this kind of what I call like a 5B process, where you have a boom, a bubble, a bust, a bankruptcies, bank failures, and then bailouts. Maybe it's six, depending on it, <laughs> right? But the, the, the place we're at now is we've had bankruptcies and we haven't had bank failures. 
right? And so that's where we are in that system. It always works the same. You can go back to 1837, 18, you know, it's always the same. And it just depends on where in the banking system is the periphery infecting and threatening the core and how much collateral does it take to kind of bail the system out. So what normally happens, right, is the local government, the, the, the central government will, you know, give a bunch of bonds or give a bunch of collateral to the banking system, buy a bigger stake in the banking system, write down a bunch of the assets, impose losses on the existing equity holder, existing bondholders, and, you know, start the machine anew. Right. And this is what you would expect to have happened in about 2015 when all the off balance sheet stuff in China started going crazy, where you have essentially companies like Evergrande and Country Garden and Shimayo and Sunak and all these folks selling bonds to households. This is ridiculous and nobody cares about it, which is hilarious. But they are literally not only do you have to prepay for your condo or whatever that doesn't get built, but they'll say, give me one hundred thousand dollars. I'll promise you a seven percent return. And we're going to run it through your local bank as something called a wealth management product, right? A little, little trust will kind of wrap this thing so it looks like a CDO or whatever. And we're going to sell it to households, okay? So imagine if Bear Stearns, Lehman were taking their like junk CDOs and jamming them down household throats, and you had all these losses. Now you got to go deal with. This is what's happened in China. They have trillions of this outstanding, where private com companies, local government financing vehicles, this kind of real estate financial nexus has sold debt directly to households through non-bank channels that are kind of associated with the banks, but not yet called. And so you have people like on the internet, you can look at this up being like, I went Evergrande like 50K and like, I'm only getting back like $5,000, right? So what would normally happen is somebody bails out Evergrande or those assets go on a banking balance sheet, the bank makes them whole, and then we have to recapitalize the bank, okay? Now the issue is if all of this activity is local, this is like where MMT comes in, then it's not that big of a problem because you can just print money, recapitalize the banking system, take some pain on the currency. Okay, what we're seeing at the same time is that the balance of payments in China is not as strong as everybody thinks, right? The, the FDI just went off a cliff, it's now negative, right? You have a lot of capital outflows. You have what I've reported on 1.5 trillion, no one cares about this, trillion of errors and omissions in the balance of payments over the last 10 years, trillion. Okay, they have three trillion of reserves. One point five might not be there because they already left. Okay, so this is where you start to go. Wait a second, maybe that's why they didn't recap the banking system in two thousand fifteen or two thousand eighteen or two thousand twenty or two thousand twenty. Maybe that's why, just because they don't have the actual collateral. And then it affects Western markets because if they have to sell bonds to shore up their balance of payments, that's why bonds are going, yields are going through the roof. That's why NPVs are getting crushed. You know, they're selling foreign assets basically. Mm. Alex, all of this sounds incredibly deflationary to me. <laughs> um, you know, issues uh, with the trust of collateral, households being robbed essentially uh, indirectly by um, uh, Evergrande and, and other companies, and a very, very weak sentiment uh, around the whole credit uh quality of the system. So how come China is stuck in this situation when the rest of the world is stuck in an inflationary environment? Yeah, it's a great question. I think to a certain extent, they've been leaning on this weakness to counter the inflationary force that's coming from everywhere else. So it's like actually like, you know, almost like fiscal policy leaning against monetary policy or whatever, where you have this huge kind of deflationary impulse that's happening at the same time as you have this kind of global inflationary impulse. Um, you know, I think that the other thing to think about is that it doesn't, for me, it doesn't really make me 
necessarily more of a deflationist or more of an inflationist, it makes me want to buy volatility on inflation because it's something that's going to be hard to control, right? It's like you're going to have this really intense deflationary shock when the banks actually seize up. You're going to see selling of foreign assets. They're going to you know, liquidate the rest of their bonds. That's going to be a big yield spike. Maybe we get yield curve control coming out of the Fed if they get too panicked like the BOE. Um, but inevitably, I think they're going to print. And I think you can kind of tell that by the fact that they haven't taken the pain in the past. If they if they were going to take the pain, they should have taken it in 2018. They should have taken it in 2020. They're not going to. They're going to do extend and pretend until they have to, and then they're going to print a bunch, which is why I kind of end up saying, okay, as a investor or you know family office or an endowment, you really want to have gold, but not denominated in dollars. You want to have it denominated in RMB because that liquidity whip whipsaw you're probably not going to get right trading the dollar. You just realize, though, that you have this huge stack of Chinese money. A lot of it's going to end up in gold. The RMB will probably fall. The gold will probably rally. And the dollar is going to have some real swings along the way, like we're seeing right now. Um, but that if you want to bet on this theme, it's just a pretty clear expression of it. Hmm. Alex, last time the two of us uh, um, had a discussion, I remember you saying very explicitly that we need to remember that times of war are inflationary by nature. And obviously you've been 100% correct on that view over the past couple of years here. So given that we now have a new war to deal with in the Middle East uh, between Israel and, uh, and the Palestinians, on top of the already existing conflict in, in Ukraine, what do you make of the inflation picture here amidst this these war times? Yeah, inflation is super interesting right now because we have the surge, we have the tight monetary policy. It looks like we might get the recession that kind of Powell needs softish landing to kind of really kill kill the bug or whatever. Um, and yet, if you go back and look over long periods of time in history, and this is part of the data work that you know we spend a lot of time on, it's just so obvious that the big inflationary moves come from conflict. And if you think about COVID as kind of like a conflict because it feels existential and we kind of printed a bunch of money it, or it's the beginning of Cold War II or whatever you want to call it, it's very on trend. But, you know, usually the big surges, you think about demand and supply, right? Demand goes up a bunch because governments consume stuff and supply goes down because supply chains get broken everywhere. And that's like microcosm of COVID um, and especially with energy markets, right? So you see, uh, you know, it's not the, the most novel idea, but look, if if Israel, you know, turns into a regional conflict, then you can bet that oil pipelines and oil supply out of Iran is going to be disrupted. You can bet you have Straits of Hormuz problems, you know, you supply chain issues, right? And so you have this like notion of escalations and conflict almost always lead to energy price inflation, which almost always leads to broader inflation. And so absent of conflict, I think we're doing okay with inflation. It looks like we kind of have broken it in the US potentially and going forward. But you know, oil just went back to 77 or something like that. Um, if it goes back to 100, you know, Powell's going to have to bring the short rate to seven and all that entails. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alex, if we look at conflict scenarios um, over the course of, say, the past 100 years or so, what does the big data tell us about how to deal with a conflict from a financial markets perspective? How do we trade it? What, what perform? What performs through such a period here? Yeah, it's it's one of those things where investors hate betting on conflict because you have no alpha on conflict, which I kind of mm. understand. I think of it as more something you need to hedge and just understand in your broader mm. portfolio allocation. Absent of conflict, you really would want a very dispersed, diffuse, collection of betas in like what we call your beta portfolio, your market return portfolio. You want a bunch of bonds, you want a bunch of stocks, you want, you know, Chinese stocks, you want Russian stocks, you want, you know, Iranian currency or whatever it is. When you go look at long, you know, periods of 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 time, what you find is that the single best way to eviscerate value is to have your assets in a place that loses a great conflict. It's just incredibly obvious, right? Where you get zeroed out in Germany twice. You get zeroed out in Japan after World War II. You get zeroed out when the Soviets take control in Russia, and then you get zeroed out when they transition over to private markets again. You get zeroed out a bunch of times when China is deflating its way, you know, through the the, the Mao era or whatever, not deflating, depreciating um, their way through the Mao era. And, you know, if you fight a great conflict and you kind of get away with it, or you kind of get scarred like a France or an Italy, you still take a beating, okay? And I think it just causes you to think about, we've seen this going on Twitter the last couple of days, but you know, people looking at the long-term return of stocks as being the US and the UK stock market, which is kind of insane. Like if you went to 1800 and you said like, make a diversified beta portfolio, you wouldn't go 100% all in on US and UK stocks, right? You'd have Argentina in there, you'd have like Spain, you'd have Italy, you'd have a whole bunch of other stuff, right? And so the, the thing that you really have to ask yourself is like, what is my universe of global assets that I really am availing myself of, of, of investing in? And I, you know, a lot of people talk about buying Chinese assets and I go, well, look, like, yeah, if you're buying Chinese assets, you're implicitly betting that if we go to war over Taiwan, like they're going to win, like essentially, <laughs> and not to be too glib about it. Right. It's just like, that's what the data says. It says that like, if you go toe to toe with a great power, one of them's getting wiped out. Right. And and so that's currency thing. It, it hits a little bit in the bond market, but sometimes the bond markets get controlled um, stocks. It depends because you get stocks running away in kind of a hyperinflation scenario. But in general, you don't really want to hold assets denominated in a in a government that kind of is going to come under existential stress. It's just a, not a good idea. Mm. So this conflict scenario uh, and the ramifications for financial markets, how related is it to uh, the quote-unquote death of the 60-40 portfolio that we've seen over the past couple of years here? Yeah, I think the 60-40 portfolio will be okay after this after mm -hmm. this rip. I think people aren't counting how many, what I say is like how many bonds are in the stocks, right? There's bonds in the real estate, there's bonds in the banks, there's bonds in the stocks. And the bonds just got murdered, okay? <laughs> and so, you know, yes, Powell could go to seven and treasuries could go to seven. You might lose another 200 basis points, but it's probably not going to 10. You know what I mean? It's It, it, it can't really go to 10 without the whole thing exploding. So 
you know, I think at a certain point, bonds are going to be a great buy. I don't I, I don't know if they're as much of a buy as maybe other people because I'm like a little bearish because of this inflation and conflict theme. But um, I think that, you know, what you really saw as a challenge to people wasn't even necessarily 60-40, it was risk parity. Mm-hmm. And the last two years was a huge challenge for risk parity because risk parity is essentially the idea of you have too many stocks, you need to go buy up more bonds and lever them. Right. And how did lever bonds do just now? Not that good. So, you know, you have this kind of dynamic where even in beta portfolios, investor psychology in and out of these themes really drives a lot of this. So uh, 60, 40, you know, I've always said that people are under allocated to gold just in general. Um, Mm. I think that we'll see that on the other side of this. Uh, we'll see people kind of everyone has five to 10 to 15 percent gold. I'm denominated in gold because I'm, you know, a bug or whatever. But um, and I see these themes coming. But but I think uh, it'll be 60, 40 plus gold and a little bit of commodities, because as we're seeing, rising inflation is death to bonds and, you know, really hits equities if if they're not growing their way out of it. Mm. Alex, what are the consequences for long term portfolio construction of this conflict theme and uh, everything that we've seen in the 60-40 portfolio over the past couple of years here. Uh, I mean, it it was basically an eye-opener to me that uh, you mentioned that either uh, either you're on the winning team or the losing team of a war, also in financial terms. So how do you think about portfolio construction given all of this? Uh, Is it safer to to remain invested uh, near to your own shores, or how do you view it? I've always been a barbell person. Like I think a lot of people lose money in the middle, middle confidence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I think when I was a my my interview question for Lehman Brothers for my first trading job, they're like, if I give you you know hundred million dollars, what would you do? And I was like, this is like two thousand seven, right? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like I'd buy some bonds and buy calls on some stuff I like or whatever. You know, like I think that that's if you're really playing for alpha, how you should think about it is like protect your money, make make your money. I think the big challenges that uh, portfolio constructors face are honestly just the ramifications of what just happened with interest rates. Like most big endowments, most pension funds, most sovereign wealth funds, they make decisions on a one to two to five year horizon. And they just spent the last 10 years gobbling up private equity and, and venture capital because interest rates got smacked to zero, right? So you have this thing where you know, there are bonds in the companies, right? There are bonds in the private equity, there are bonds in the in the venture. Because when ZERP happens, when interest rates go to zero and the 10-year treasury is trading at two, every long duration, illiquid, you know, kind of pro-growthy asset gets bid up to the moon. And I saw this when I was trying to raise, I'd run around and say, you know, okay, we're providing a liquid alternative, we're gonna try to make some alpha, here's this China theme. And they'd say, look, man, we just took our liquids book and divided it in half and went and bought a bunch of private equity. And you say, like, why? They say, well, did you see the Yale returns? You know, everyone talks about Dave Swenson, Dave Swenson. They say, you know, Yale has showed us the truth, which is go buy all this liquid stuff, liquid credit, a liquid PE, liquid venture. And by the way, this stuff has a 10 to 20 year return cycle on some of these things. And now they're locked into these. Right. And so I think this is a big theme that people are still a little bit slow on. You saw it happen a little with the UK financial institutions that had a lot of this long duration stuff, but a lot of these private equity portfolios, a lot of these venture portfolios are overmarked. And so you're mm-hmm. gonna see selling of, we saw bonds, but you're gonna see some selling of stocks and liquids as they have to kind of rebalance those portfolios because they already have too much liquid equity. Um, and so I think that that's gonna be a bearish trend for sure. And I just would wait 
for the carnage before making a big private equity investment because you know the the fundamentals of that business don't even necessarily make sense when the cost of debt capital is higher than the cost of equity capital like it is right now alex uh, as i mentioned uh early in in the program i um you've basically ventured into artificial intelligence now you've founded rose ai and i'd like to spend the last 10 12 minutes here on discussing the future of portfolio construction investments given artificial intelligence um my first question and it it it, it sounds very simple but it may be very complicated to answer how far are we from a scenario where i can ask artificial intelligence the same questions that i've asked you for the past 30 minutes yeah great question and i'll, I'll kind of start a little bit by reframing it which is you know i started rose because i more or less came to this realization that like every financial institution is just an information processing engine right when you're a trader you get these down days on sunday or you have a bad week and you're like oh i'm just playing a video game like what's the point of this video game it's all just numbers in a spreadsheet right and you hear finance guys talk about this all the time and like the actual logical extension of that is you are you're playing a digital video game with like numbers in a spreadsheet and the way that financial institutions deal with information and data is a reflection of that where <clears throat> they make it really hard to update the spreadsheet right they make it really hard to get the data and clean it and merge it and get it to clients and turn the portfolio over and you know people say like why are there 1500 people working at bridgewater or whatever you go well it's hard it's hard to go and collect and clean and analyze and synthesize that data even when you know the rules that you want to use to apply that data to markets okay and so you know you see this tension between oh is Bridgewater fundamental? Is it you know quantitative or what does systematic mean? You go, well, it's kind of both and people like their heads explode. But the reality is that just processing this data, buying and selling data, warehousing and understanding what the heck is in your machine is an enormous, enormous problem and pretty much what most financial institutions do and especially what most hedge funds do. Right. They take in information from all different kinds of places. They come with a view of portfolio. That portfolio is different than the market portfolio. And then they go try to make their alpha. Right. And so we started Rose because we said, wait a sec, I might be wrong or right about China and gold and who cares about Campbell's view on conflict and inflation. But I know that I'm right about how painful this stupid thing is and how much value can be unlocked if we could tap into each other's understandings and wisdom. Right. So this idea that the machines are going to get smarter, not just because there's a good LLM that Sam Altman made, but because they have access to information in different ways that they didn't before. The cloud's a big part of this, but they have access to, you know, thoughts. And so we're trying to build systems and, you know, networks so that when an analyst has a really good idea at Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or whatever, they can encodify that into actual knowledge that someone else can buy. And that can expedite that process. Now, what you realize when you go into some of the most intense, actual pure quant, not even just systematic, but pure quant funds, is that in data engineering, scale computing, you know, the processing of the information ends up being a huge portion of their alpha, 70, 80% of their alpha. It's not that they're sitting there being like, oh, when a, you know, when a stork flies over Barcelona, then it's a good time to buy Italian bonds or whatever, right? It's like literally just go find the data and add it up. And so that to me is going to get us, I think, 75% of the way there, but is way harder, ironically, than building a robot that can chat about gold market with you pretty well, because we're going to get pretty good at that, right? It's the actual backbreaking work of 
hey, what are all these engineers doing to go and find this information, clean it, encode it with our right representation to really go and understand how to test it, right? And I'll give you two quick examples here because it sounds like, you know, gibberish or whatever, but it's like, think about just what is the sharp ratio of um, US stocks? Okay, just that one question, right? And then think about bonds and everything else. Well, are you talking about the total return or the excess return, right? Are you talking about if it's excess return, what cash rate are you using? Using LIBOR or SOFR or whatever? Now go make that 200 years long, okay? And tell me, like, is that even a real thing? Like, is that even true? Like, can you manage that? And you go, wait a sec, now I know what all the engineers are doing at all these places. Because there's some trader who comes in and goes, oh, when the sharp ratio of, you know, stocks is higher than gold, I want to sell gold and buy stocks. And you go, well, what sharp ratio are you going to use? And they go, well, I'll come back to you in a year and a half with some, you know, data. And so that is the thing that I am working on really passionately. We are betting on the trend that you're describing, which is these robots are going to get super smart. They're already super smart. Um, they can understand things like, you know, adding a current account to a balance of payment flow and like buying a currency or whatever it is. Um, but I think that just as like a meta lesson, okay, and that th this conversation kind of mirrors a conversation that I have a lot online, probably too much, with what, what I would call AI doomers, okay? Mm -hmm. And an AI doomer is someone that says, look, the robots are getting increasingly smart. They're going to get infinitely smart. Then they say, infinitely smart things seek power. And then they say, and they also pursue goals that are misaligned with you and me, and then we're gonna get Terminator, basically, okay? And I say, well, look, my experience from actually using data to trade markets in all these places that are kind of AI adjacent or directly AI is that like the machine will go down, it always breaks, and you can't trust it, so you need a human behind it. And you see the same thing with, I don't know if you saw Cruise and Waze in California recently, where they just came out that, I think it was Waze, I don't know if it was the same company kind of, but um, driving around these autonomous taxis, right? And if you've ever been in one of these, they feel pretty safe because they're really slow and they respect the rules. Turns out there's a person in like the Philippines or like India or something, once every 20 minutes coming into the car and driving it for you. It's not fully automated. There's a person in the Philippines who's driving it for you, but they're not driving the whole time. This is how the world works, okay? The world is not going to be run by hyper-intelligent, perfect machines that never break and are going to take over, right? It's going to be run by increasingly concentrated, powerful machines where there's a couple of humans who understand how that machine works and are kind of using it to interact with a, a world that's evolving. Right. Mm -hmm. One last kind of anecdote. I'm sorry, I'm rambling so much. Is the classic lesson of LTCM. Okay, so LTCM's smartest guys in the room, realistically, right at the time, and they blew up because they didn't have their own trading behavior in their markets. Right. They're like betting on these like basis point spreads that they've collapsed to like you know four basis points because they're buying the basis point spread. Right. <laughs> and so the market wakes up to this. The market goes, "We're going to call your bluff." They blow them up. And now we have that in our time series history, but we didn't before, right? So markets are always evolving. And I, and, and I think a lot of people are going to make money in automation. I think a lot of people are going to blow up relying on overly automated systems. If we look at the status right now um, in the hedge fund industry and among fund managers in general, how far are they um, in relation to implementing artificial intelligence as, as part of their decision-making process? I think it depends on your definition of AI, right? Mm. Like there are almost certainly individual models that are very AI oriented that still go through 
basic, you know, human checked risk systems and, you know, there's a PM, there's a CEO of the fund or whatever, and they're still ultimately responsible. I have yet to see really a true like soup to nuts, 100% AI company or, or fund. And, you know, what I do, I'll probably short it um, because, you know, why not bet on the guys at AQR, the guys at, you know, Two Sigma, the guys at Jane Street or Gals, right, who are already wicked smart and fluid with this data, just integrating the best parts of that AI, right? What's to say that this AI is gonna be better? I think you can imagine a world where in 20 years, my company has been built and all the robots have access to all this data, which they don't, which is why my company exists, ha ha, right? But, and you get more automated systems running around and trading this stuff. But like, if you actually have ever worked with buying and managing financial data, you realize like, I used to joke, like it takes me six to nine months to buy data and get it in my systems at a fund that's $150 billion. Like nobody cares about the $6,000 data license, right? And yet we didn't have infinite data licenses. Why? Because the actual backbreaking work of like building an API, connecting it, cleaning it, like connecting it to the market, what happens when the, when the computer breaks and like you get a weird signal, all these things have to be built and are almost as much art as they are science still. So we will get it one day 100% AI company, but you'll need to have radically different information pipes for that AI to really be autonomous. Um, and a lot of people are gonna blow up along the way first, I think. Mm. So final question related to AI, Alex, is it possible to trade macro themes using artificial intelligence? And secondly, is it possible to create alpha using artificial intelligence or is artificial intelligence by the end of the day rather a beta yeah study. interesting question yeah. I, I think that there will be alpha through some of these models i think that they will be derived from things we already know or sources at alpha which are find a bunch of diversified information signals or, or sources right and very quickly clean them and aggregate them and you know, use that to make inferences. Um, you know, conceptually, that process, aside from all the stuff I'm talking about with it being manual and breaking all the time, which is a big objection, um, should be very you know amenable to kind of AI workflows. But again, like it's a competitive market, and so you get you know some AI robot in the CDS market, and you'll have some AI robot in the volatility market, and some robot in like the bonds market, and they're going to start like fighting each other. Right. And so it's not like you can just like wake up one day and like it's going to eat everyone's lunch. It's like you have trillions of dollars of assets under management all looking for alpha. And I think that AI and data especially is the future for that that flow. But I think there's just a real risk in terms of, you know, the extrapolation of expectations going too far in terms of what these systems can actually do. And, and that's, you know, honestly, why I, I've devoted my life more or less over the last couple of years to the idea of like radically democratize access to information, radically democratize the ability for people to find data where it is and ingest it. Because I, I wanna bet on both the human and the robot needing that data. And I think that it'll be the, that those two working together is really the future. Alex Campbell, founder of Rose AI, thank you very much for being with us here at Real Vision. A pleasure to host you. Thanks for having me, it's always a great time. 
this was it for this month's edition of Buy Side Meets Sell Side. I hope you appreciate the monthly tour around the buy side of the equation. At least I learn a lot every time and Alex was another great guest for this show. I'll see you again next month with another great investor invited to the Buy Side Meets Sell Side show. See you then. Hey all, you know, as a member of our Real Vision community, I want to give you something special. And that special thing is early access to our massive Black Friday sale with an incredible discount plus some more free stuff for you. You see, for me, getting prepared for 2024 is key for all of us. It's going to be a banner macro year. We've got a US election, a crypto bull market. We've got rate cuts to come. We've got technology. We've got everything at play all at the same time. And you need to be prepared for all of that. So realvision.com forward slash early Black Friday. Take advantage of the offers right now and set yourself up for an incredible 2024. Thanks.